Rich up here, uh, dusted off his sticks. Uh, it's been a while since he's played for us, but we're excited about his uh, ministry and uh, look forward to God using him in that way. Some of you have asked about uh, Matt, uh, who's in uh, Cyprus uh, for a, a semester abroad, and he's just having too much fun. That's all I got to say. He's uh, got there a little early. His classes start Monday, but he's just praising the Lord. I'll have to share with you some of his uh, devotional thoughts that he throws on his uh, blog or or Facebook, and um, God's doing a work in his life. Well, this morning, uh, we really trust that God's going to do work in all of our lives as we, as we talk about this book. And what we'll do each uh, Lord's Day is we'll talk about the Bible, and then we'll talk in the Bible as far as going to specific passages. It's been our desire in this series called Questions Asked and Answered, is, is really uh, make a journey which we really understand this book. And we began at the beginning, we began to look at the book in its entirety, and then today we really get into the nuts and bolts of the series as we look at the New Testament and looking at one of the 27 individual books in the New Testament. But a little bit by way of review, and the reason we all talk about the Bible is to understand the Bible clearly, you need to understand its setting and, and just uh, really what it's all about. As you think about the Bible, the Bible is a book, and the book is from God. And uniquely so. And in fact, if we were to ask ourselves the question, why should we believe the Bible is the book from God? There are a variety of ways we can answer that. And uh, one of the ones we shared is that if there was a book from God, it would be like no other books. And that is true about this book, the Bible. Uh, It was written over 1,500 years by um, over 40 authors from all walks of life on three different continents with three different languages. And in the midst of all that was going on from all kinds of walks of life, there is a central message non-contradictory, and it's all about we're all messed up and we need someone to come along to clean up that mess. And really that's all about a person. Even in Genesis 3.15, we looked at that last week, there was a promise made about Jesus coming or the Messiah coming, the one that would, would clean up the mess that was brought in by the fall. So Jesus is coming, promised to come in the Old Testament. Then in the New Testament, Jesus is coming, and then toward the end we see that Jesus is going to come again. Another way to look at the entire Bible is to look at the Old Testament as promises made and in the New Testament as promises kept. And we're going to be looking at that this morning as we begin to look at those things that God has brought to us so that we might understand Him more deeply. Some of you asked this past week, and as we look at questions asked and answered, one of the ways we're going to do that is, is post as many, if not all, the ans- our answers, some of the answers to those questions on our, our website Additionally, we'll have some things, inserts like we had today, and then sometimes I'll just sprinkle in some answers uh, throughout the message. But as you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, you need to understand that there was a a period of time between what was written in the Old Testament and what was written in the New Testament. Uh, Historians call that the 400 silent years from Malachi to Matthew. And during that period of time, what we see is we see the transition in terms of, of how life is being lived out. And even as at at times I'll give you dates, the reason I give you dates is not because it's going to be on the test. Remember all those historical things you had to memorize? But I I, I will give you dates sometimes just for reminding you that the truth is that this book and and this story about God declaring who He is was done in real time, in real places, to real people. And and you see the course of of time uh, throughout the, the Bible where you see some of the great empires, you know, from Egypt, to Assyria, to Babylon, to Medo-Persia, to Greece, and then to Rome. And really what you have between the 400 silent years, you see that transition from 
Greece, to Rome. And now you have, and it tells us in Galatians, that at the very appointed time that was strategically made by God himself, he sent forth his son. And we find God's people in the midst of living out their lives under the oppression of a political leader called Rome. And the reality of their existence is is such that they have to get permission really for everything in life. We take freedom so for granted, really, in the United States because uh, we don't live like most of the rest of the world lives. Our problem, we have too much freedom. We can't decide you know, what box of cereal we want to take out of the, you know, the drugstore. We have no idea as far as in terms of just making choices. But in many places, if you have one choice, you're glad. But during that period of time, they were under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And they were looking for a deliverer. And God was going to send that one, that promised one that was given us in the Old Testament and fulfill it in the New Testament. Now, last week we talked about when we say the New Testament, what really do we mean? Well, really, and this is the phrase I think I'm trying to outline this morning, that New Testament is really the fulfillment of the, the new and last will and testament or covenant from God that becomes fulfilled or into effect upon the death of the testator, which is Jesus. Or to put it again, just in a phrase, the New Testament is really a document, a legal document in which God fulfills what he has promised in the past, recorded in Jeremiah 31. And we get in all the benefits of those promises at the cost of his son. Now, now what the New Testament does is it unveils that to us. It it tells us God's story, and that's what the Gospels are all about. And then it goes through the period in which we we hear how that's played out. And so we get a a little historical narrative, which is what the book of Acts is about, telling us, well, how do the people who followed after Jesus live that? And then we have the epistles, which really is a, a story, again, in which... God's apostles or the friends of the apostles tell how even God's people, after coming to faith, struggle with living it out. And then we have that statement of what's going to happen in the future. And the good news about the future is, is that we win because God wins. Well, this morning I want you to look at the four Gospels, and then we'll get into the, the Gospel of Matthew for a time. First of all, what does the word gospel mean? Gospel in Greek means glad tidings or good news. In Anglo-Saxon language, interestingly, it means God's story or good story. And so as you think about the New Testament, a, a, a familiar way to say it is, well, it's God's story about himself. It's God's story declaring his promises fulfilled. But it's good news. And why is it good news? Because all that's messed up can be cleaned up if we come to the one who can clean it up. As you think about the Gospels, and we know that we have, we have more than one, we have four. And sometimes when people look at that, well, why, why didn't God just have one author tell the story of Jesus? Because you need to understand that the four Gospels are complementary accounts that provide a comp- composite picture of Jesus. Now we know in our day that when people get the news, they have a, a number of options, at least in our country. You can go to the traditional channel, channels, ABC, CBS, or NBC, and you can get... If there's a story on, usually what happens is everyone are covering the story at the same time. But if you flip the channels, 
Sometimes the pictures are different. We know that those who are the talking heads will say different things about what's going on. And now we even have, you know, Fox News and we have all the cable channels. And what you do, if you really wanted to get every kind of angle around there, you'd listen to everybody. Of course, in our day, the more you listen, the more you get confused. But what we have here uniquely is not people who are fighting in terms of their perspective on the gospel or the story of Jesus, the good news, God's story. But what they're doing is they're, they're looking at it from different angles so we see it clearly. And we can connect in a way that makes sense. Also, particularly the authors of that day were writing to different audiences. If we were speaking to children right now, we might illustrate or talk about it in a different way. If we were just talking to youth, we might describe things in the Bible in a way that would connect with them. But in, in, in many ways, there's similarities, but there's some differences because he wants, they wanted to connect to an audience. And we're going to see that this morning as we kind of see, kind of in broad brushes, the differences between the four Gospels. Now, the first gospel is the gospel of Matthew. And there isn't any particular revealed explanation as to why it's the first gospel. But in a natural sense, we know it's, it's a great choice because it's the bridge from Malachi to, uh, to the New Testament. Because Matthew particularly was writing to God's people. Matthew wrote to a Jewish religious audience, and he focused on Jesus as the Messiah King. And we're going to look at that a little bit more as we see into the text uh, this morning. But he was really speaking to those who who knew some about God's revelation. And can I take a few moments here just to talk about revelation? You know, sometimes when we we talk about revelation, we're thinking about God revealing something to us personally. Or, Or sometimes, maybe we don't use that word or that language, we'll talk about a person being inspired. Inspired to write poetry, inspired to write a, a song, a love song maybe to a dear one, or, or whatever it might be. But as we understand from a biblical sense, the word revelation or inspiration is unique. It's not something that people who are creative or have some nuances in terms of how they write or how they sing or how they play or how they talk. It's speaking of something coming directly from God. Sometimes we talk about God wanting to to guide us. Sometimes when we're making a decision, we will say that uh, I believe God is leading me this way. Or maybe we'll even go a step further and say God spoke to me. Now, I'm not going to over-criticize that language, but but let uh, let me throw out some warnings to you. When you, when you speak about God speaking to you, you need to understand that in the Old Testament and the New Testament, this was not the normal experience of the people who were falling after God. There were some select individuals that God spoke directly to or manifested himself directly to. But the rank and file did not get to hear the audible voice of God. They did not get a written document from him. They, they were not moved within their spirit by the Holy Spirit to write what he wanted to be written. And so as we think about hearing from God or God speaking to us, we need to understand that God has spoken to us. That his word has been recorded for us to understand and then to put into application in our life. Let me see if I can illustrate it another way. Um, 
I, I, I am blessed with having great parents. And uh, I, they, uh, they, they come to the second worship service, and I'm glad they're here in our, in our church. Uh, for most of my ministry, they were not in the church I, I pastored. Uh, but to, just to give you a little background, my relationship with my dad has always been really close. And part of the, part of the thing that I, I probably appreciate more than anything about my dad was the wisdom that he had. And we would spend hours talking. And I would, I would just pick his brain just about anything and everything. Now, what I want you to understand is that when I was not in his presence and I was trying to think in a situation what I ought to do, I might say, well, I wonder what my dad would do. Now, when I had to figure out what my dad would do, I would have to go the process to say, what did my dad say? I wouldn't ask, okay, somehow give me a divine speaking from my dad into my brain so I can know exactly what he wants me to do right now. What I did is I based on what I would do, based on what he had said, and then I would try to apply it to my situation. And I really believe we need to understand that that we're in a relationship with God. God speaks, and he has spoken, and what he wants us to do is take what he has said and in the situations and experiences we are, to take what he has said and then apply it in our life. And so in many ways, we have much more divine revelation and inspiration and, and, and content to guide us because it's written down. So as we look at this word, what we need to understand is just how precious it is. This is a direct, concrete statement from God that we can base our life upon. The key of living out a life following God is to obey what he has said and trusting him that what he has said is good and true. Well, Matthew, again, spoke to people that really had a background, and so he spoke to a Jewish audience. And we're going to see how that was manifest and how he wrote. But then we have another gospel, and this is the gospel of Mark. Mark wrote to a Roman pragmatic audience. And he focused on Jesus as a servant redeemer. And really what you'll see, you'll see action everywhere in Mark. It's the shores of the gospel, and all you have is Jesus moving. He's just moving and doing. And basically that's what the Roman Empire wanted to see. You know, don't tell me what you're going to do, just do it. And so Jesus demonstrated being the servant, but also the redeemer. Luke wrote to a Greek idealistic audience, focused on Jesus as the perfect man. Now, as you, as you understand, you know anything about you know, the Greeks, and you know, they are famous for giving us the Olympic Games, and they were really uh, into having the enlightened mind, but also the perfect body. And so as they were looking at a promised one, some that could change their life, that man would have to be perfect. And then you have the Gospel of John. And in John, you have him speaking to the universal audience. This is a catch-all. And he focused on Jesus as the Son of God. Now, just for free, sometimes people like word pictures, and those who write about the Gospels, they'll say this. If you want to remember that Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience and he was speaking to them as the Messiah King, then think of Matthew as a lion. And we all know the, the picture of the lion king. Let's try that one more time. If you th- want to remember that Matthew speaks to a Jewish audience, emphasizing that Jesus is the king, you want to think about the lion king. And then as you think about Mark, some will say, well, how, how can we picture Mark as he portrays Jesus as being the servant, active leader? Well, you could take 
it being like a bull or an ox who serves his master. And then as you look at Luke speaking to a Greek or Gentile audience, this is one who speaks about the perfect man. And sometimes we'll say, you're the man. Well, no, there's only one, the man, and that's who? That's Jesus. So you see the man illustrated for Luke. And then for those who look at John, John bringing us the highlights of Jesus being God, the Son of God. Jesus is the eagle. He soars above anyone and everyone. But a few more background things before we look in the text this morning. As you look at particularly Matthew, why do we say that he is the bridge between a Jewish audience and Malachi uh, to the beginning of the, of the New Testament in Matthew? Uh, it, it's because, again, he is speaking directly into, into their lives the things they can relate. For instance, the kingdom of heaven, that phrase, and if you're going to be a king, you've got to have a kingdom. And so he speaks about the kingdom throughout this gospel is that he is the only one who uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. In fact, he uses it 32 times in his gospel. Now, there are those who try to make a distinction between the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. In fact, I went to a school that initially did that. But really, there's no distinction. He's really speaking of that rule and reign that will last forever on heaven and earth. It derives from heaven, and it will manifest God's personal rule throughout his creation. But the reason he spoke the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God is just think for a moment. There is a, there is a uh, commandment, thou shalt not take the Lord your God's name in what? In vain. And so they had come to the point that they did not want to break that commandment. Now, the easiest way not to break a commandment, at least verbally, in relationship to what words you attach to God's name, is to never use what? God's name. And so that's why he was sensitive to that. He didn't want to say the kingdom of Yahweh or the kingdom of Jehovah, the kingdom of God. He wanted to say the kingdom of heaven because he didn't want somehow them to be offended by what he wrote. And so again, you speak him directly to an audience that needed to hear this. It's also the reason why the beginning of this gospel is a struggle for new readers. You tell people, you know, once you come into faith in Jesus Christ, once you decide to follow him, you've got to read the Bible. And sometimes they'll say, well, where should I start? And you say, well, you ought to start in the New Testament. And so you start in the New Testament, and normally when you read a book, you, you begin at the beginning. So you open up the, the New Testament, you start with Matthew, and all of a sudden you get this list of what? Genealogies, these names. And you're saying, now I know why I never read the Bible. Number one, it's so boring. Number two, I can't understand what it means for my life. Well, you need to understand the audience for the Jewish people, that was one of the most exciting parts of the entire New Testament because it laid out that Jesus had qualification to be the promised one. That the tracks in the sand had been laid very carefully that Jesus, throughout the pages of history, was the promised one. And it began with the genealogies. So the reason we struggle, why would you start that way, is because we need to understand the audience. For others, it was, it was the best way to start. So one of the things unique about Matthew, it begins with, or it has the, begins with the genealogy, and then it has at least 32 references uh, to uh, the kingdom of heaven. And then secondly, it uses 130 references or allusions to the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. Now, if you were writing to a Roman audience or even a Greek or Gentile audience, would they care a whole lot about what was in the Old Testament? No, for them it was, it was just a book. It wasn't a book from God, it was just a book. 
And so he was speaking to a group that, that wanted it to be verified that what God had already said was being confirmed by what it was being said. Does that make sense? Now, there's probably only between 50 and 60 direct quotations, but there's probably another 70 or so allusions back to the Old Testament. And again, the reason we say this is, is, is we want to understand the New Testament, we need to understand its setting. You, you can't really understand what is being written until you know who it's written to and, and why it's being written and, and some of the peculiarities or particulars about the book that's being declared as from God. And then thirdly, who was the author? Well, again, this is, this is that creative union between God and man. As you ask yourself the question, you know, who wrote uh, the book of Matthew? You might immediately say Matthew, but well, say, well, didn't God have a part of it? Well, they both wrote it together. Uh, but, but who was Matthew? Matthew, thinking about Korean here, Matthew was a tax collector. And so what we're going to see here is, is God in the midst of drawing out the message, his story, he chose one of the disciples who was from a walk of life in which he was despised and hated. In fact, it would remind them of the oppression they were on with Rome. Because a, a tax collector then really... Um, tax collectors today are great and gracious people, the most honest people we have in, the, in our society. We, we are blessed to have them. If we wouldn't have them, when we'd just waste our money. All right. But anyway, it is... As we think about tax collectors there, what they did is they, they skinned off the top. In fact, the first third or first half. They, uh, they were considered traitors to the Jewish nation. And, and, and they were oppressed by Rome. And, and much of their resources were given back uh, to this Roman, evil, evil Roman Empire. And, and those Jewish people who decided to align themselves with Rome were hated and were really considered unclean. And, and in fact... In Matthew chapter 18, 17, it says that if you were a tax collector, you were lumped in with heathen and harlots. But God, as we hear about his story, in fact, if I don't say this enough throughout the, the unfolding of the Testament, it's all a story about God's grace. It's God's unmerited favor. It's something that we all desperately need and don't deserve. We need, a, we need a touch from God because none of us are worthy. And even as we have a writer who was from the chosen people, he recognized that, that if he were to somehow stand before God because he ethnically or racially was part of God's chosen people, he would fall short. And so Matthew, and, and, it, and we see it in such a humble way throughout his writings, tells us the story about the promised one who came to to clean up our mess. As we look at the first half, and that's all we're going to do this morning, not exactly half, we're going to go to chapter 12, I'm going to give you you an overview of this book, and then we're going to look at some key passages, and we'll just look at as as many as we can see, have time to see. But if, if you see Matthew as a demonstration presenting Jesus as the Messiah King, and I'll just throw this one for free as well. The Messiah is the Jewish, and we're using it, pronouncing it in the English way, was the, the Jewish name for the promised one, Messiah. Christ is the Greek presentation of the Messiah. What the word Messiah and Christ mean simply means anointed one. In case you were ever wondering, when I was young, I used to think this, that, that Christ was Jesus' last name. Now, it's a title, okay? 
if, if, it was, if it was any name, he had a last name in terms of a physical way, it would be Joseph's son. Jesus Joseph's That's how, you know, the son of Joseph. But he was known as Jesus, the son of the carpenter. But Christ was his title, just like Emmanuel was his title. Uh, the son of God, son of David. And we see the son of David throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And as we see this, we begin to understand that, that if he's the Messiah King, that throughout the, the 28 chapters of Matthew, that, that thread of the kingship of Jesus is there. So if we were to give an interpretive outline of the Gospel of Matthew, we would always want to emphasize his kingship. So in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we have the birth of the king. Now, you could add some other things in there, and that's why once you start outlining a book you could you know it's the genealogy of the king the credentials of the king but you see the birth of the king and it's a miraculous birth then in chapter three interesting enough we have what i call the identification of the king Uh, just another little freebie here is as you look at the the record of the four gospels and as we look at it interesting enough and i don't know if i've mentioned this already today i think i might have skipped it is that the first three Gospels are what's called the Synoptic Gospels. Some of you might have ever heard, have heard that before. I remember hearing that for the longest time. I had no idea what it meant by synoptic because I never used the word synoptic. Synoptic literally means seen together. And basically, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of similarities. In fact, 60% of those three Gospels are basically the same uh, with a little different perspective. Then you have John, who, which is what's called the Supplemental Gospel, and the supplemental gospel is that it's 90% new material. And it adds a different perspective. But, but as you look at the four gospels, really, if you were to add up the days in the life of Jesus, there's only about 50 days recorded in the life of Jesus that's written about. And in fact, he lived for 33 years, but you have a gap between his birth and a few days when he was young. He had a, his vision of the temple... Uh, when he was young, and then all of a sudden you have Jesus arriving on the scene before John the Baptist. And, and really what you have here is, again, in God's timing, you have Jesus portraying who he is, fully God and fully man. So in chapter 3, you have the identification of the king, and that happened at his baptism. And, and really, if you've never been baptized, let me give you a clue here. The reason we get baptized is the fall example of Jesus, and he's commanded us to do that, and that should settle it right there. But really, it's to do somewhat the same thing that that he did. When we get baptized, we get identified as a Christ follower, as a disciple of his, one who believes in him and wants to live for him. Now, when Jesus got baptized, it wasn't because he was needing repentance of sin. That was the baptism of John. But when he got baptized, it was his coming out party. It identified who he really is. For instance, and how did that happen? There was a voice out of, God, out of the heavens. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, how about you? If that happens to me, then you can think I'm a little bit divine, all right? But that's never happened. And then you had the Spirit of God descending upon him. And so chapter 3 identifies this is the crowning of the king, his identity as being who he claimed to be. Then in chapter 4, what you have is the testing of the king. You know, if anyone has ever been in a position of leadership, usually they test them. Those who, uh, those, how many here have ever taught? I mean, in the public school system. How many have ever subbed? Have you ever been a substitute teacher? Okay. It's interesting. I've done, 
I haven't subbed in a, a public school, but I have done some places where it's almost like that. I was in a juvenile hall and taught there for a little bit. I didn't, I wasn't in there. I was teaching in there. Okay. Is, uh, but it's, it's always interesting when you're in a new crowd with a teacher there, you know, they want to test to see whether you got it. You know, are you, are you if, uh, and, and this is what happened to Jesus. You say you're the king, then let's, let's see if you really would act like a king. And so Satan tempts Jesus in the most powerful ways. And Jesus passes the test. And then in chapters 5 through 7, and I'll throw this in for 3 as well. As you look at Matthew, Matthew, some people will say, I'll watch my time here. It's, it's kind of like a, um, a similar approach to, to truth as we have in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And so you have here is five key messages from Jesus, and then you have action. A message and then action. A message and then action. And what you have in uh, chapters 5 through 7 is the first message of the king. And it's probably his most familiar message to us. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And it's really a message simply of talking about how to follow the king. And if, uh, if you ever feel that somehow you might measure up, you might be good enough to fall after God on your own merits, read the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> there, there is no way any of us could stand uh, or even sit in the presence or, or prostrate ourselves in the presence of God on our own merits. And so he outlines what it means to, to really truly follow him. The Sermon on chapters 5 through 7. And then it's chapters 8 through 9. Now you have, again, action plan. You have the, I don't even know if I can say this right, the authenticating, yes, yes. I don't even know why you put that word in there, but it it, it fit, the authenticating of the king. And and really what you have here is that it's one thing to to say it and nothing to do it. And so you have the miracles of Jesus beginning to unfold. So the authenticating of the king. And then you have the second message. The second message of the king, uh, and that's all about training and sending the disciples of the king out. Uh, then you have the imitation of the king in chapter 11, and then the rejection of the king in chapter 12. Now, some actually say that chapter 12 is the key chapter in this book to understanding what happened uh, to the Jewish nation and the Jewish people, uh, particularly uh, symbolizing the leadership of the people as it relates to the message of the king. But what I want to do in the, in the few minutes we have left is, is I want us to look at some of the text within the, the the message, the, the good news, the God story from Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, we have uh, part of the message of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, here was a question actually that came from uh, one of our small groups, our life groups, uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, in this is, is the Lord's Prayer. And in, in, in many worship traditions, the Lord's Prayer is recited uh, frequently. And it's just a reminder for us about how God wants us to, to, to approach Him and pray unto Him. It, it, uh, in fact, just read it. Look at Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 8 through 13. Uh, reading from the New Kings Version. Uh, Therefore, do not be like them, which is those who pray unto God with, with vainless repetition, just uh, impressing God with the, the words that come out of your mouth. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. And I'll just throw this in for free as well. God is never impressed with how beautiful your words are when you pray. And if you're just intimidated, pray out loud because other people just sound so much better. Have you ever felt that way? 
don't. Just don't. God's not impressed, so you shouldn't be impressed as well. And now, coming from a professional Christian, a pastor, I get paid for being good, you guys are good for nothing, is that, is that the, people I, the, the people I probably least like to hear pray are people like me, pastors. You know, so I've been in prayer meetings with pastors, and I'm thinking all they're trying to do is show off. You know? Look at God is not impressed with our verbiage and how we pray, but he is impressed with what's in our heart. And uh, just a pitch, next Lord's Day, we're going to have an emphasis on prayer. We're going to take a, a one-week break from our series on questions asked and answered. It's a great message on prayer, and, and we need to be a praying people. But, but look at what he says here. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. So the idea here is not that we ought to recite the words, though there's nothing wrong with reciting the words, and it probably ought to be something we ought to do more regularly here at, at Grace Hills Church because it's, it's from the words of Jesus, and so it's an opportunity to think through how we ought to pray. Uh, but it really ex- speaks about the expression of what we ought to pray about. Beginning, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When, when, when we worship, in fact, some people put the acrostic acts and somehow fit this into this prayer. It's, we ought to begin with adoration. Remember who we're talking to. We ought to praise the privilege of being in the presence of God. Uh, your kingdom come, your will be done. It ought to be a supplication of submission. The kingdom is all about God's rule. And, and, and really, if you want to begin at the very beginning in your relationship with God, it's all saying, God... You need to be the boss of my life. You need to call the shots. You need to be the Lord of my life. You need to be the king, the ruler, and reign in what I do. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me ask you right now, in the realms of heaven, and it's now popular with people who have already come to faith in God in a true relationship with, with Him. How well do you think the, the will of God is being done in heaven? perfectly and our passion is that we want god's will to be done perfectly in our life and you actually say well how do we do that by be obedient to his word which is an expression of his will and so that ought to be at the heart of our prayer he goes on and then says uh verse 11 give us this day our daily bread and for just stopping there he is the one that we ought to seek for our resources and our needs and provisions and I don't think he's just talking about physical food here, bread. He's talking about every part of our life. God, I, I want to receive from you what I need. And then he goes on, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that's the whole idea of confession. <laughs> it, it, it's not like that uh, once we come to faith in Jesus Christ, um, the penalty of our sin is, is dealt with. But, man, the presence of sin is still within us. And one of the, the indicators of being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ and growing in a deeper relationship is not that you never sin, it's, it's how quick is it you come to confession of that sin. The longer we rationalize that what we've done is, is not that bad, it's, it's all right, it, it didn't hurt people too much, it, maybe no one else saw it, is that when, once we sin in attitude or action and things we should have done that we didn't or things we shouldn't have how did I get that right? <laughs> things we shouldn't have done that we did and things we didn't do that we should have. Either way, sins of omission or sins of commission. Is how quick is it that we admit we, fall, we, fall, we fell short? So there's confession in here. There's submission in here. 
there's adoration in here. Verse 13, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. See, it's a passion for us to connect with the living God, to recognize who He is, to ask Him to provide for our needs, for His will to be done perfectly in our lives and the lives of people around us, and recognizing that we need to depend upon Him or we'll fall down paths that will be destructive. But, but really, the passage I want you to look at is, is Matthew 6, um, 25 through 34, and really I'm only going to look at the last two verses. Because again, I think this, this is a central message in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew writes, or records the words of Jesus when Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do any of you have a worry list? You know, you get up in the morning and say, hey, what should I worry about today? (laughs) Um, Most of us have not only, we don't write it down, but we have things that we're concerned about today. But most of us not only have a worry list for today, but a worry list for tomorrow, and the day after tomorrow, and next week, and next month, and next year. If you have kids, you're thinking about when they get teenagers, whatever it might be. You've got all kinds of worries. And, and, And Jesus is saying, why would you do that if you really have a relationship with me and recognize that I'm a provider? Now, he's not saying that there aren't some things out there that are worrisome, but that he is the worry breaker, that you can trust him, that no matter what you go through, it's going to be sifted by a loving father, and that your only concern. And where that line is from concern to worry, I think we struggle sometimes, and most of us know, when we're disconcerned and when we fall into worry. And worry is simply taking responsibility for things you have no right to take responsibility for. It is, you can be concerned, but just be concerned about things today. I think all of us could, could tell stories about all the things we used to worry about that never came to pass. <laughs> and all those things that we were worried about that never came to pass was just wasted time being burdened down by things that weren't going to happen. So be concerned about today. And the biggest concern is put His rule in your life first. And His agenda, which is His kingdom coming, more important than anything else you do. A couple other quick portions. We're in Matthew chapter 9. We have made a as a purpose for us living out our purpose. Our purpose is to honor God by helping more people become fully devoted followers of Christ. We want to be a Christ-centered church, which means we want to love Christ, we want to grow in Christ, we want to serve Christ, we want to talk about Christ, we want to honor Christ. But, but how do we do that? What's the, what's the process by which that's going to get done? Well, we as a people need to be committed to, to worship with, as we gather together in settings like this. We need to be people who are committed to meeting together. And that's what life group is all about, as we grow in Christ. But we need to be, be a people that recognize that when God gives us new life, it's not just for ourselves. That we're to reach out with that message. That we have an oikos. That's a, a word in the Greek about a household, a, an extended household, in which people bring, God brings people in our life that we're responsible for to, to be that witness to. 
those 5 to 10 to 15 people in our relational world that don't know Christ that, that we want to touch. And really, Matthew, who, who was a missionary to the Jews, lived that out. Uh, look at his story. Look at Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 says, As Jesus passed on from there, he was in a ministry of uh, uh, healing right before that, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And so he arose and followed him. Now that was a shock to Matthew. And it was even more shocked to everybody else. Because why would, would Jesus, who is the symbol of righteousness and holiness, reach down and touch someone who is so unholy, so unclean? Because everyone is deserving of God's message. Everyone can respond to the, the transforming power of Jesus. But what was the response to Jesus, of, of Matthew? And we only have a couple verses on this. Verse 10, now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold many tax gatherers and, and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Now again, you see that even, you got to recognize, this is Matthew writing these words. He even blended tax gatherers with who? Sinners. We were all there together, all my friends. He didn't have any friends in the religious World. He didn't have any Pharisee friends or Sadducees or people who regularly went to the synagogue. All he had was tax collectors, gatherers, and sinners. And he sat down with him, Jesus, and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax gatherers and sinners? And verse 12, When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. You know, just think about that for a moment. Jesus was very simply saying this. If you don't need him, then he'll have none of you. Anyone who thinks that they, uh, they're all right by themselves, then Jesus did not come for you. But as you look at your own life, you take an honest look at your life and recognize that you fall short. That you are sick, not necessarily physically, but spiritually. That you are living a self-centered life. There's only one who can heal you. And what Matthew did is he threw, a, he threw an oikos party. He invited all his friends to meet Jesus. And see, that's, that's what we're left here for. We're left here to be a channel of sharing God's love that's been poured out in our hearts so that people who are needy can find help. Can you imagine that? All of his friends were described as, as just sinners. And, and those who were religious said, why, why would you even give them any time? Why would you eat with them? And, and, and they always felt that somehow it would rub off on you if you were to be near a sinner. And Jesus said, this is the reason I came. What does God call us to do? He's called us to seek first his kingdom. And one of the ways that's laid out is to, to seek out those who need to know him. In chapter 12, and this is a chapter on the rejection of Jesus. And just really reading a verse that verses that have really troubled many people. Verse 31, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit or blasphemes the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. 
Now, that's just a very simple statement that we could spend a whole Sunday on. But basically what he's saying here is that the Holy Spirit is, is, is penetrating every heart. And, and the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, main goal is to draw people to Jesus. And he speaks to us of the reality of who Jesus is. Now, on that day, they saw it. They saw the miracles. They, they could not deny that, that Jesus could do the miraculous. And they said, you have done this miracle, these miracles, not by the power of God, but by the power of the evil one. But in a contemporary application of this, when we say no to the work of the Spirit in our lives, who testifies of Jesus, that Jesus is simply a man, a, a good teacher, maybe a prophet, but not the King, the Messiah, the Redeemer, then we are on the edge of the only sin that God will not forgive. And that's the sin of rejecting Jesus. What do I want to leave you with this morning? What's the so what? Who's reigning in your life? Who's the king of your life? Who's in charge? Who's the ruler? Jesus came to be a suffering sacrifice for us. But he came as a king to rule. Let's pray. Father, each one of us are at different places in our journey with God. Some have never made that step, and that's a step that has to be made if, if sins are going to be forgiven. But Father, there's also a step for each one of us as we've come to faith in you, and that is who is ruling and reigning right now. Father, help us to, to rid ourselves of those things that that keep us from putting you first. Father, you want us to come in your presence, yielded and committed to the leadership of Christ in our life. Father, in a moment, we're going to express our love to you through our giving. We're going to continue to worship. We're going to have people up front uh, who are ready to pray for those who would like to pray. But Father, if you've been speaking to our lives, we ask that we might humbly give our all to you. And we praise in Christ's name. Amen.